Carter championed human rights, but he understood that America had an alliance system and it needed to be maintained. Today, he is known as the president who put human rights first and foremost. However, American intellectual Noam Chomsky has a different view on the matter. He said that if the Nuremberg principles were applied, every post-World War II president would be uh, indictable. That's probably true. Can we run, uh, run down them real fast? What did Eisenhower do that you would indict him for? Eisenhower uh, overthrew the conservative nationalist government. Uh, take, your, take, them, take, say, Carter. You know, I'll, I'll get there, but Nixon's okay. next. Uh, Nixon, we don't even have to talk about. <laughs> we, we can skip that one, okay? But uh, seriously, in fact, that's a major war crime. Carter? Carter uh, increased as the Indonesian atrocities were increasing. They peaked in 1978. Uh, Carter's flow of weapons to Indonesia increased uh, when Congress imposed a human rights restrictions. By then, there was a human rights movement in Congress. Uh, to block the flow of uh, uh, advanced weaponry to Indonesia. Uh, Carter uh, arranged through Mondale, vice president, uh, to get Israel to send U.S. Skyhawks to Indonesia uh, to enable Indonesia to complete what turned out to be near genocide, killing maybe a quarter of the population or something. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East, uh, Carter just won the Nobel Prize. Uh, his great achievement was the Camp David Agreements. Uh, the Camp David Agreements are presented as a uh, diplomatic triumph for the United States. In fact, they were a diplomatic catastrophe. Uh, at Camp David, uh, the United States and Israel accepted, finally, Egypt's 1971 offer, which they had then, the U.S. had rejected at the time, uh, except that now it was worse from the U.S.-Israeli point of view because it included the Palestinians. Uh, in order to accept, get Israel to accept Egypt's 1971 offer after a major war and atrocities and so on, uh, Carter raised uh, aid, military and other aid to Israel to more than 50% of total aid worldwide. Israel used it at once in exactly the way they said they were going to do, as every sane person knew. Uh, as an opportunity to attack their northern neighbor, first in 1978, then in 1982, and to increase uh, integration of the occupied territories. Uh, and that's for starters. We can continue. Reagan? I don't think we have to talk about that one either. I mean, Reagan is the first. Carter's pragmatic way of viewing things are why he oftentimes overlooked brutal things done by U.S. allies, such as the Shah of Iran. The Shah was installed in a U.S.-backed coup in 1953 to overthrow the Prime Minister and Soviet sympathizer, Mohammad Mossadegh. Over 25,000 political prisoners were held in Iran's jails. The Savak, the secret police of Iran, brutally oppressed the people of Iran into submission. The only place Iranians could hold anti-Shah meetings were in the mosques and religious places which the Savak couldn't control, leading to a dogmatically religious revolution to begin. On New Year's Eve 1977, Carter went to Tehran to announce America's continued support for the Shah. A week later, anti-Shah demonstrations broke out. The Savak fired on the demonstrators and killed several students, igniting a revolution. Things at home turned against Carter. By 1976, inflation was getting out of control. Carter's economy was the last economy to be affected by the Vietnam War. 
Carter asked the people to keep wages and prices low to combat this event. He asked Congress to cut back on spending. The people didn't listen. Once again, Carter's humility and directness caused him problems. He tried to speak honestly to the people, and they didn't like it. By 1978, Carter's approval rating had dropped to 33%. As Time Magazine put it, Carter has the potential to grow in office, but he doesn't have much time left. Carter, floundering, turned his attention to the Middle East, where as a devout Christian, he felt deeply about. He wanted to make peace in the Middle East, like the great Jared Kushner. Egypt and Israel had been in a state of war since the creation of Israel in 1948, and Israel had occupied the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt since the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Gamal Abdel Nasser, the Egyptian demigod, an architect of animosity between Israel and Egypt, had died, and his successor, Anwar Sadat, was looking for a fresh start with Israel. On November 17, 1977, Anwar Sadat became the first ever Egyptian leader to step foot on Israeli soil, a risky move after his attempt to retake the Sinai during the Yom Kippur War he himself started. His goals were to debate the Israeli parliament on their own soil and come to peace with them over the Sinai. Carter saw this and acted. He invited Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Bengen to meet at Camp David, the country retreat of the American president located in the mountains of Maryland. Carter had formed an intimate relationship with Sadat he considered him a personal friend, even going so far as to posthumously call him the greatest leader I have ever met. Menachem, the conservative Israeli prime minister, he was more unfamiliar with. Carter used his intellect and intellectual capabilities to mediate peace. He started with a blunder. He wanted to have Sadat and Bengen just meet and get to know each other, assuming they would eventually spark a friendship and come to a compromise. After three days of the two men angrily debating the past, he realized it was the wrong approach. The two were not cooperating or discussing. Carter later recalled, two men were brutal to each other. They argued deeply over biblical scriptures, on whose land was whose, what ancient text meant what. Carter realized if the two men couldn't speak to each other, they would have to speak through him. After this, all meetings would be conducted through Carter. As one man rested, Carter would meet with the other. Carter's honesty and integrity earned him the respects of both Sadat and Begin. He was making ground. Carter one day, proposed a trip to the famous battlefield of Gettysburg, under the condition that nothing about the Middle East or after 1865 would be spoken about. Both men agreed. The famous Israeli, eyepatch-wearing, victorious Arab-Israeli wars general Moshe Dayan approached Sadat. Dayan must have left a bad feeling, because as the conversation concluded, Sadat infuriated, declared he was leaving Camp David. Carter recalls, I was wearing blue jeans and so I put on more formal clothes. I went over to the window, and I looked out over the mountainside and said a silent prayer. Then I went over and confronted Sadat. It was, only a, it was the only harsh confrontation we ever had. I told him that he had betrayed me and broken his promise to me, that if he left Camp David and left me and the Israelis there, the condemnation of the world would be on him. And eventually, he decided to stay. He only made two demands of me and my negotiation role. One was that we have a comprehensive agreement on behalf of the Palestinians, which is there. And secondly, that all Israeli troops, all Israeli citizens 
had to leave Egyptian territory in the Sinai. Those were the only two, he said. Anything else you negotiate, my good friend Jimmy, as he always said, I will accept it. Through meticulous mediation, eventually a peace treaty was reached. Israel would return the occupied Sinai Peninsula, and Egypt would recognize Israel's right to live in peace. Camp David was the high point of Jimmy Carter's presidency. It would go on to shape his post-presidency. Although his victory at Camp David was momentous, Carter had sunken too low in the eyes of the American public. His approval rating stayed the same. Oil crisis. At home, America was entering another oil crisis, similar to the one which had happened six years earlier, where Americans had to wait hours to fuel up. As the Iranian Revolution picked up, oil prices started to rise rapidly. On April 5, 1979, the average price of crude oil was about $15 a barrel. Over the next 12 months, it would reach $40 a barrel, the highest it would go until March 2008. As prices rose, people began panic buying. Gas lines filled up. Americans began questioning Carter's ability to lead. Abroad, he was making progress. In January 1979, he received the Chinese vice premier to celebrate the establishment of American-Chinese relations, which had recently been opened. In June, he met Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet premier, to negotiate and enact SALT II arms treaty, a treaty meant at restricting nuclear weapons. The people saw him as abandoning the country, putting all of his energy into stabilizing the rest of the world while the USA suffered. Gas prices had more than doubled. Mortgage rates pushed 20%. Unemployment was rising. Inflation was out of control, surging to 14%. Carter responded by cutting into social programs. This stirred up massive opposition from the liberal left, represented by figures such as the younger Kennedy brother, Ted Kennedy, who had assumed the mantle of leader of the liberal Democratic wing. The Carter budget cuts were another blunder to his reputation. Carter's analytical way of thinking would always be a hindrance on his political career. Riots sparked all over the country. Polls showed Ted Kennedy was beginning to lead on Carter in the Democratic nomination. The Republican nominee, Ronald Reagan, was also beginning to lead on Carter. Carter's approval rating at the time was 25%, even lower than Nixon's at the time of Watergate. Even Trump, after the Capitol riot, maintained an approval rating of 29%. Carter decided to take a break and clear his head. After a 10-day retreat at Camp David, he gave the most controversial speech of his administration. Good evening. This is a special night for me. Exactly three years ago, on July 15, 1976, I accepted the nomination of my party to run for President of the United States. Ten days ago, I had planned to speak to you again about a very important subject energy. For the fifth time, I would have described the urgency of the problem and laid out a series of legislative recommendations to the Congress. But as I was preparing to speak, I began to ask myself the same question that I now know has been troubling many of you. Why have we not been able to get together as a nation to resolve our serious energy problem? It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper, deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper even 
than inflation or recession. And I realize more than ever that as president, I need your help. So I decided to reach out and to listen to the voices of America. I invited to Camp David people from almost every segment of our society, business and labor, teachers and preachers, governors, mayors, and private citizens. And then I left Camp David to listen to other Americans, men and women like you. It has been an extraordinary 10 days. And I want to share with you what I've heard. First of all, I got a lot of personal advice. Let me quote a few of the typical comments that I wrote down. This from a Southern governor. Mr. President, you're not leading this nation. You're just managing the government. You don't see the people enough anymore. Some of your cabinet members don't seem loyal. There is not enough discipline among your disciples. Don't talk to us about politics or the mechanics of government, but about an understanding of our common good. Mr. President, we're in trouble. Talk to us about blood and sweat and tears. If you lead, Mr. President, we will follow. Carter, the Southern Baptist, came off as preachy like a sermon. The people did not like being critiqued. They wanted to be led. He came off even worse after the speech. He needed a rebranding, so he asked his entire cabinet for their resignations. It didn't help. He appeared weak and desperate. His approval rating tanked even more. The liberal wing broke with Carter. Ted Kennedy was now the darling of the Democratic Party. The stress began mounting on him, and shortly after, Carter, who was an experienced lifelong runner, collapsed during a 10K. It made him appear physically weak and caused quite a scandal. On October 22, 1979, the now abdicated, cancer-ridden, dying Shah of Iran requested asylum in the USA. Carter granted it. It infuriated Iranians. And two weeks later, on November 4th, 3,500 Iranian students marched on the American embassy in Tehran. They took it over and held 52 Americans hostage, demanding the Shah be returned to Iran. Ayatollah Khomeini, of the soon-to-be newly declared Islamic Republic of Iran, gave his blessing, calling the U.S. Embassy a den of spies. It was a massive embarrassment to the USA. All over the world, images of U.S. flags being burnt were shown on television from protesters in Iran. Carter, who was oftentimes handicapped by his Christian morals, feared human bloodshed. He called off all military operations as too risky. He often saw the good in people and thought he could come to good terms with the Iranians for a peaceful release of the hostages. While Carter debated on what to do with the Iranian hostages, another important event occurred. I come to you this evening to discuss the extremely important and rapidly changing circumstances in Southwest Asia. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan which had hitherto not been an occupied satellite of the Soviet, Soviet Union. Carter, feeling the pressure from the Iranian hostage crisis, reacted strongly. 
He instituted a trade embargo on the Soviet Union and boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. He also requested that the Senate postpone action on the SALT II nuclear arms treaty and recalled the U.S. ambassador from the Soviet Union. It marked a drastic decline in Soviet-U.S. relations. The age of detente, which had been the U.S.'s foreign policy for the 1970s, had ended by the man who fought so hard to bring peace. Finally, Carter announced Carter Doctrine. The following key sentence was written by Carter's national security advisor. Let our position be absolutely clear. An attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America, and such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. After months of fruitless negotiations with the Iranians, Carter decided now to act. He initiated Operation Eagle Claw in response to the Iranian hostage crisis. This would be the first mission from Delta Force, America's new counter-terrorist special forces. The plan was that eight rescue helicopters, named Bluebirds 1-8, would fly into Tehran, retake the U.S. Embassy, evacuate the hostages, smuggle them through Tehran to a captured Iranian airbase, and then fly them to safety. The problem was that Tehran was too far away for the helicopters to land without refueling, so after entering Iran from the Persian Gulf, they would have to land in a refueling station established impromptu in the desert, called Desert One. The refueling airplanes would arrive first. They would land and establish the covert base, Desert One, while waiting for the Bluebird rescue choppers. As the airplanes entered Iran, they encountered what the Iranians call a haboob. Haboobs are giant walls of dust created from high winds rushing out of a collapsing thunderstorm. Cold air in front of the storm rushes down at an incredible rate, picking up massive amounts of dust and sand, blowing them into the air. They called the helicopter team to alert them. Even before the storm hit, one of the choppers, Bluebird 6, reported that a hydrogen leak had occurred, a possibly fatal incident. Bluebird 6 was forced to land and abandon the chopper. The crew was picked up by another Bluebird, Bluebird 8. Meanwhile, the refueling airplanes had landed at Desert 1, an isolated location in the middle of the Iranian desert. Being in the middle of the night, the refueling team expected a discreet landing. However, the team spotted a semi-truck on the nearby highway. They decided to neutralize it to minimize their secrecy. However, just as the U.S. soldier approached the semi on a bike, in the opposite direction a bus full of civilians approached. The soldier shot the engine in order to stop the bus and shot the semi as well. The semi turned out to be an oil tanker truck and it ignited, causing a massive explosion. The driver of the truck managed to escape and retreated into a pickup truck following the tanker. Back at the Bluebirds, the mission continued to deteriorate. Caught in the middle of the massive haboob, Bluebird 5 experienced engine failure from the dust and critically low on fuel. It retreated back to safety and returned to base. Six helicopters remained. The Bluebirds were completely blinded by the storm and the crews began to panic as they were scheduled to be passing a large mountain. The dust cleared just as the helicopters were about to hit said mountain. They pulled up barely missing it, leaving the crew shaken. Arriving at Desert One, late, the commander on the ground began refueling the remaining six Bluebirds, when suddenly, Bluebird 2 began to malfunction. Too much dust was taken in, and the helicopter would be unable to operate. The commander called Carter to ask what should be done. Having only five functional Bluebirds would mean that some of the men would have to be left behind. Carter decided the mission was too risky and called it off. The equipment would be destroyed and fake Russian documents would be left there to confuse the Iranians. Carter responded by saying, 
At least there were no American casualties, and no innocent Iranians hurt. Carter spoke too soon. As the helicopters began to take off, one of them lost control and crashed into the refueling plane, exploding, killing eight Americans. The mission was a massive failure. Carter took the blame for the rescue operation. It would go on to haunt him in the soon-to-come 1980s presidential election. Carter came close to losing the Democratic nomination to Ted Kennedy, an uncommon situation that shows turmoil within the party. This remains the last election in which the incumbent president's party nomination was still contested going into the convention. President Carter's approval rating at the time were very low, 28% according to Gallup, with some polls giving Carter even lower numbers. Carter still managed to narrowly defeat his competitor, Senator Kennedy, who was haunted by his infamous Chappaquiddick incident. Carter now would have to face up against Reagan, the extremely charismatic ex-Hollywood actor. He trailed Reagan by 20 points. Carter ran on the offensive, portraying Reagan as a trigger-happy cowboy who would start World War III. His offensive was all but disproven in the first presidential debate, where Reagan came off as calm and cool, sealing Carter's fate. Carter lost massively, only winning six states, including losing the Democratic Senate. One of the reasons Carter lost so massively, and the paradoxes of the Carter administration, is that Carter, being possibly the most devout Christian of the 20th century to hold the presidency, also saw the formation of today's religious right. Events during the Nixon administration saw the formation of the evangelical right, issues relating to segregation, taxing churches, and Roe v. Wade led to their formation in support of Reagan, who was a far-right, religious, anti-big state, pro-family values conservative. This election marks a social conservative shift known as the Reagan Revolution. The hippie culture of the 1970s gave way to a more conservative culture. Disco, free love, and anti-materialism were replaced by hedonism, cocaine usage, and the glorification of elitism. On the last days of his presidency, a deal with the Iranians had finally been met. He was determined to get the hostages home. As Reagan was sworn in, Carter waited for the hostages to be released. The minute after Reagan was sworn in, Ayatollah Khomeini released the hostages as a slap in the face to Carter. Carter, however, was not deterred. He immediately went to Wiesbaden, West Germany, where the hostages would land on friendly soil. Carter was there to greet the hostages. Shortly after his presidency, Carter decided to create the Carter Center, inspired by his accomplishments at the Camp David Accords. The Carter Center's goal is to advance human rights and alleviate human suffering, including helping to improve the quality of life for people in more than 80 countries. The center has many projects, including election monitoring, supporting locally-led state building, and democratic institution building in various countries, mediating conflicts between warring states, and intervening with heads of states on behalf of victims of human rights abuses. It also leads disease eradication efforts, spearheading the campaign to eradicate guinea worm disease, as well as controlling and treating trachoma, lymphatic filariasis, and malaria through awareness campaigns. Carter's popularity has picked up in his post-presidential years. Carter has been an active volunteer and spokesperson for Habitat for Humanity, an organization that has helped more than 35 million people construct, rehabilitate, or preserve homes. Carter has perhaps been the best example of the title, public servant. Carter's presidency has been revised in recent years. Before the 2000s, his presidency was largely seen as a failure, but many historians nowadays view him in a more positive light, 
for his pioneering views, such as climate change and human rights. In 2002, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Carter today is the longest living American president. He is the sixth oldest leader in the world. He is still happily married to the love of his life, Rosalind. And in his free time, he continues to write books, teaches Sunday school, and volunteers, still at the ripe old age of 97. We've learned from personal experience that poor people, the poorest of all people who are often scorned or derogated, are just as intelligent as we are. They're just as ambitious as we. They're just as hardworking as we. Their family values are just as good as ours. They just need some help. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. 